Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about other aspects of the publishing world, themed discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of every podcast episode, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. This week, I'm asking anyone who enjoys this podcast to please review it wherever you listen if you have a few minutes. Thanks so much to those that already have. It does not need to be a long review. Just a couple of sentences would be so useful. Reviews really help the podcast find new listeners and bump it up in the various algorithms. I greatly appreciate your support as I continue to grow the show. Today, I am chatting with Britt Bennett about The Vanishing Half. Born and raised in Southern California, Britt graduated from Stanford University and later earned her MFA in fiction at the University of Michigan. Her debut novel, The Mothers, was a New York Times bestseller and her second novel, The Vanishing Half, was an instant number one New York Times bestseller. She is a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree, and in 2021, she was chosen as one of Time's next 100 influential people. Her essays have been featured in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The Paris Review, and Jezebel. I hope you enjoy our conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Britt. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here, and I'm really looking forward to talking about The Vanishing Half. You had to be so excited. A number one New York Times bestseller, one of the 10 best books of the year by The New York Times, a Good Morning America pick. It goes on and on. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a whirlwind. (laughs) Do you ever get tired of thinking all of those wonderful things happen to you? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not tired, but I think uh, overwhelmed, I think, is more, more accurate. Well, it's very exciting, and definitely congratulations are in order and well-deserved. Thank you. For the few people that won't have read The Vanishing Half yet, can you give me a quick synopsis? Sure. It's a story about identical twins who grow up inseparably but decide to live their lives on opposite sides of the color line, one black and one white. So when you first started writing twins, was it hard to distinguish them, or was it very easy from the beginning for you? Uh, No, I think it was pretty easy. I never mixed them up. They both presented themselves to me as so different from one another that they never really got confused in my own mind. They do have very separate identities, but I would just wonder sitting down, because you're not a twin, right? No. Yeah, I would just wonder sitting down if it would be a little bit difficult to think, okay, this one has this personality, this one has this one. But that's great that that didn't happen at all. Yeah, I mean, they seemed 
yeah, they seemed so different to me that I didn't really get them mixed up in that way. I think, I, you know, I, I don't know. I think even like I, in my mind, I saw them a little bit differently, even though I knew that they were identical. Just even when I imagined them, they felt so different to each other. Well, that's nice then. What about your sophomore novel? All authors always talk about how difficult their second novel is, and you even mention it in an acknowledgments that you struggled a little bit. So what was it like bringing out your second book or getting your second book down onto the page and in final form? I mean, I'll say, first of all, I struggled a lot. Um, I think it was a big struggle. Um, I think, you know, every book is challenging in its own way, but I think there is something about a second novel that, you know, with your first novel, you're not like you don't know what you don't know. You know, you're going into it just trying to write a book. You just hope that that book will be sold someday. But you're just you have a type of freedom and abandon, I think, when you're writing a debut versus the second book. You have the, the past. You know what's happened in the past. You know what you want to happen in the future. You have perhaps the burden of expectation on you. You have external pressure on you that wasn't there before. And then on top of all of that, you're just trying to write a book and that's its own sort of beast. So I think it was challenging in all of those ways, but I was glad I started it before the mothers came out. So I started it in that space of total freedom. And I was really lucky for that because I think it, it can be difficult after you've had a book that's come out and, and it has received a warm reception. Starting from the blank page at that point, if I had had to start this book in the wake of the mothers, I think it would have been a lot harder than the fact that I already had a draft or two by the time the mothers came out. And I absolutely love The Mothers, by the way. I read it when it first came out. I recommend it to everyone I knew. I just thought it was such a beautiful story as well. Thank you. But yes, I guess on your sophomore novel as well, a lot of times you're on a much shorter time frame. Now, it sounds like you really weren't because you had written it before The Mothers came out, but you're working to get it out quicker. And I'm sure you're probably finding that for whatever you're working on now. Yeah, I mean, I think it did. It was a bit of a shorter time frame. It took me a lot less time than writing The Mothers, which took forever. But yeah, I mean, I think there's also, you know, those elements of it, of there being an expectation. And I and I didn't feel a lot of pressure from my editor, nor do I feel that pressure now of this is when the book needs to be done. But at the same time, you do, I think, sense it um, when you <laughs> when you are working on a, a follow-up book. And everyone asks you, like, that's one of my questions. I'm sure it's one of everybody's questions. What are you working on now? Yeah, everyone does ask you that. And it's, um, it's... I think a bit more reasonable now because it's been a couple of years since the book came out, but it was very funny when people were asking immediately after the book comes out where you're just like, okay, I just finished this one thing. Like, isn't that enough? So yeah, I mean, I think there is that sense, but like I said, I'm really lucky. I have people around me who have never made me feel rushed and have never made me feel, of course, they, they want me to finish it. Um, I'm sure as soon as possible, but it's not like anybody's breaking down my door or trying to get the draft. Harassing you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I always ask the question because I'm just curious. I, you know, If I love a book, I'm like, well, I want to know what they're going to have coming out next, even if it's in two years. It's just interesting to hear how authors' minds work, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I get it. I'm always, you know, I'm one of these people who's trying to ha harass Rihanna for the new album. So I understand <laughs> that feeling of, I really love the last thing you did. I really want another thing. But also, you know, I understand like, not to compare myself to Rihanna, but it's just like, you know, people have other things they have going on. People have other projects they're working on. And sometimes a book, you know, just takes longer than, than you expect it to. So I think as a reader myself, it's like we, I, I have to, I have, I have empathy for people who, who want to have the next thing. And I also have empathy to understand that, you know, the, sometimes the project's going to take longer than I want it to take, but you, I have to just be patient until it's ready. 
Absolutely. It takes a while sometimes for things to percolate. You need to put them away, think about something else, come back to them. Mm-hmm. Well, your paperback version is coming out a little bit later than a lot of times paperbacks do. Is there any particular reason for that? I'm always so curious how these decisions are made. Um, I don't know. I think, um, honestly, it's, I think it's like a nice thing to have the paperback at all, I think, because some books don't get a paperback. So I think it's nice to have one. I think it gives the book kind of a second life and extends its original run. And it also allows you to get the books, like, for example, for students, Um, you know, I have a friend who's a professor who was talking about a book he wanted to assign, but it's not out in paperback yet. So it doesn't feel right to ask his students to go out and buy this, you know, $35 book. So I think that it, it gives your book another life. And yeah, so I'm, I'm fortunate to have a paperback at all. And it's exciting to have it come out. Yeah, a year and a half later, I think is has been nice to see the book have this kind of second wind. Absolutely. Because I do think it one introduces the book to a whole new group of readers, but also reminds everyone else who read it and loved it all about it. And then they're chattering about it all over again. Exactly. Well, can we talk about your inspiration for the book? Yeah, it really came from my mom, I think, in a lot of ways. She grew up in rural Louisiana and kind of told me about these towns. She remembered hearing about about light-skinned Black people who obsessed over lightness. So that was really the first impetus for the book was the idea of this town. And, And then from there, the twins kind of emerged. It's hard to imagine a town like that, I think, when I was reading some of your interviews and you were talking about your mom mentioning this town to you. It's just hard to think an entire town has that as its focus. Yeah, I think so. But I think that's what was so interesting to me from the beginning. And when I set out to write the book, I did some research and found some of these communities that she was kind of talking about and read about some of these places. And then beyond that, just wanted to imagine what I thought it would be like to live there. I sort of came to think about it as almost like a eugenics project. And that was something that was very chilling, but as a novelist, is a really fascinating place to set a book. No, that's true. It is a little chilling, but you're right. It does make for great fiction. What kind of research did you have to do? Um, I think some of it was on researching these types of towns. Some of it more broadly was about the history of racial passing. Um, and then there were other things in the book that were very narrow that I wanted to know more about. So like I read a book about a book by a bounty hunter because there's a bounty hunter character and I don't know how to do that. So I read um, a book about a bounty hunter, about how do you find missing people, particularly in the time before the internet, when, you know, now we leave such massive trails online that it's impossible to disappear. In a pre-internet age, um, it seemed very easy to just pack up and go. So how then do you find that person? Um, so there are books I read on that. I read books about acting. I read books on, yeah, some of these very kind of specific characters who are doing very specific things. I did research on that. So yeah, it was it was different. The book, I think, I like to start off by doing some general research and then, but you don't really know what you need to research until you write deeper into the book and find new questions that you need to understand. So it took me in a lot of different directions, but I, I found out some interesting things. You literally just preempted my next question, which was, did you do all of your research ahead of time or <laughs> did you do some research as you wrote? So I would think you would have to, as you start writing, you're thinking, oh, wait a minute, I want to include this bounty hunter, but I don't know enough about bounty hunting. Right. And so then you go find that book. Or some other new issue comes up and you're on the internet or you're tracking down a book. Yeah, I think so. Because I mean, the other thing I always try to be mindful of is that it can be very easy to slip into procrastination through research of feeling like I can't write a word until I know everything about bounty hunting. And then the next thing you know, you know, all this time has passed. So I try not to get too hung up where I can't move forward unless there's something I truly don't understand at all. And then as I am writing, I try to continue researching as I'm writing and a lot of those, those two kind of modes to support each other. 
but you really don't know what you don't know until you start writing. So I think sometimes you need like a baseline uh, knowledge to begin. But once you begin, then I think your research becomes more detailed and more specific and more interesting because you're now you're narrowing down what you're looking at. You're not just looking at the broadest explanation of the thing. That makes perfect sense. Do you have a hard time while you're researching, even after you started writing and you're going down a rabbit hole, leaving it behind and trying to not just incorporate every little detail you learned about whatever it was that was so fascinating into your book? I think so. And I also tried to catch myself on moments where you just learn something that's interesting. So you try to fit it into the book by any means possible. And sometimes that just doesn't work. And I think also particularly writing about something like race. I mean, there were so many things that I read that were so just absurd, ironic, wild, interesting. But I thought to myself, like, if I include this in the book, people are not going to believe it in fiction, even though it's true. (laughs) Because, you know, there are so many things that are real that if you put it in a book that's fiction, people are going to say that's phony, even though it's something that's real or really happened or, you know, so I try not to get to the fun thing about fiction is that you can cherry pick, you don't have to include every, every real detail, you have to include any real details if you don't want to, you know, you can make up everything. So I like having that freedom to, to pick and choose. And I just try to always try to remind myself to not let my own desire to be clever or my own desire to include something that I think is really interesting. I think you can always find, find out when you're reading and you're just like, okay, the writer was really obsessed with this, even though it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily help the story. But you're just like, okay, the writer really liked reading about light bulbs. And, you know, and now I'm reading a page on light bulbs. So I try not to do that. I try to be aware of when I am kind of letting my own pet interests get in the way of the story. But at the same time, also, I think that's what, you know, that's what I love about fiction is that maybe there is a page on light bulbs and you just keep, you know, like there, maybe there, you know, there are books, novels that take weird detours all the time. And if it's, if it's written interestingly enough, I'm game for anything. So I think, you know, I try to hold all of that. um, I try to keep all of that in mind as I'm, I'm writing and researching. Coming up with the perfect balance. Because I agree, I can be reading along and then I'll feel like I'm just pulled out of a story because all of a sudden I'm like, this is so random and it doesn't really fit in here. Mm -hmm. But in another book, I could read a page on light bulbs, but it's blended in so well that I'm like, oh, I just learned all about light bulbs, but it doesn't distract me at all. So it really does depend on how it's done. And as you said, if you can incorporate it naturally into your story. Right. I feel the same. So I'm sure you've talked endlessly about this, but your book came out around the time of George Floyd's murder and the subsequent Black Lives Matter protests making your story more timely than you maybe expected it to be. What was that like? Um, I think it was very overwhelming. I think it was an overwhelming moment personally to be month three in a pandemic and month three into solo quarantining and then to experience this huge tumultuous moment and then to have a book come out on top of that and then to be asked repeatedly about what everything meant when I was trying to figure out what it meant for myself. So Sure. I think it was a really um, overwhelming experience when I look back, just all of it. And I honestly, it's like surreal to me when I think about what my life was like then that I just like kept, um, I think, a fairly even head and just made it through because (laughs) it truly was uh, the wildest time of my life. And at the same time, I was trapped in my home. Like I couldn't, I had no outlet to just get out and go see a friend and blow off some steam or go, you know, I, I really felt so trapped, um, but at the same time, so public and exposed. So I think it really was wild when I look back on it. And I'm glad that I feel like my life now feels a lot more even keeled and normal as I as I feel like most of our lives hopefully do. I really felt for you during that time period, because I thought she's written this beautiful book, it's coming out, and then all of this other stuff is happening that kind of pulls your book 
into the center of the fray. And that must have been really difficult at times, as you just said, and not having a great way to be able to blow off the steam. Yeah, I mean, I think I have grown in these years and I've become more comfortable with establishing boundaries and establishing what things I want to talk about, what things I don't want to talk about. You know, I always tell people that I'm I'm a writer, I'm a storyteller, I want to talk about stories, I want to talk about books. I'm not an oracle, I can't tell you what the future of race relations hold. I can't tell you, um, you know, there are people who, you know, are educators, and there are people who are historians and sociologists, and, you know, people who have real knowledge about all of this. And all I can really tell you is my own personal feelings, um, because I'm a writer who deals in feelings, you know, so I think I've become better in that time of establishing those types of boundaries and trying to protect myself a bit more than I think I was doing back in 2020. But some of that was just, you know, having to grow a bit and having to become more comfortable in saying no and and saying what things I was willing or not willing to discuss. Well, you were just thrown into the fray, not on purpose, you know, not intentionally, but it just happened that the way everything occurred and the timing and everything just kind of put you right out there. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, what do you hope your readers take away from the book? I just hope people enjoy it. I mean, it's a basic answer, but I just feel like I don't I don't take for granted that people are going to sit down and read a book, read any book, because there's so many other things that people need to be doing and can be doing instead. Um, and then on top of that, to read my book when there's so many millions of great books that have already been written and are coming out, you know, as we speak. So I don't take it for granted at all. And I hope that people have a good reading experience. I hope that the book challenges you perhaps to think a little bit differently about identity or to expand your own ideas about identity, to complicate your own ideas about identity. I think that those are things that I love. But I mean, I, I love nothing more when, than when someone comes up to me and says, you know, I haven't read a book in a while. And this book got me back into reading. That's something that I really love the idea that when you know, somebody who has a million other things that are demanding their attention just took some time out to read my book. It's a huge compliment. Yes, I think so. Well, I love to talk about titles and covers because I think a lot more go into them than people realize. So tell me about how The Vanishing Half became The Vanishing Half as its title. Yeah, I mean, the title really came from my agent. We had a bunch of different titles that we were brainstorming, my agent and my editor, myself, and had a bunch of different options. I think it was my agent who came up with The Vanishing Half, and we all just really loved it. We felt like it spoke to the different character journeys. We felt like it was visual and evocative and... I think that that leads to kind of the cover. It, it it evoked an image that I think is one of the images that you can kind of see on the cover. I love the cover because I think depending on how you look at it, you see different things, which is what you just alluded to. So kind of whatever is in your mind, you sort of focus on it. You see the women or you see a bunch of colors, you see whatever. Was this the first round that they gave to you or was it a process? Um, it was a bit of a process, but I think this might have been one of them. They gave us like maybe six to see at once. Um, and I think this one was one of them. So we saw a few different versions. There were some iterations of this cover that were just different shapes or different colors. And then there were some that were just completely different covers that they showed us. So yeah, this was one of the early ones we saw for sure. And I think the group sort of collectively felt like this was the most striking one. And yeah, I think there is something very striking. I, you know, I, I, the idea of like what's going to stand out in a store window or what's going to stand out on your phone when you're scrolling through Instagram. I think that that is something that you have to kind of think about. And I'm glad that River had such, has such a great art department that they, you know, I think they have such amazing covers that they come up with all the time. So I, I knew that I was in good hands going into it. 
And I think they do a wonderful job of having more unique covers because one of my pet peeves is sort of all these themes in different genres. And really, it's kind of the same cover, but just looks a little bit different depending on the book. But yours is really strikingly different in a good way. Yeah, I think so. You know, it's I mean, it's hard because it's, I, you know, as as an author, you usually don't have much say in the cover. So when people talk about covers kind of all looking the same, I, I do feel I think that I think that can be true. But also, like, it has nothing to do with the writers. It's, you know, it has everything to do with publishers thinking of what has worked in the past and trying to, like, play the hits. But at the same time, you know, there are certain there are certain types of books, like within, if the book is about a certain, you know, certain topic, then we're going to, we have to do a cover that's like this, or we have to use these colors or we have to whatever. So that being said, I, that's why I think I'm glad that, you know, the cover, both the covers I think I've had have been a little abstract, but there's also, it evokes that there is a human, there evokes a person in some way, but without it being you know, like a woman turning her head or like these things that are, that are kind of cliched cover sort of ideas. So I feel grateful about that. But but also, like I said, I mean, I think most writers have like no say on their cover. So you just kind of have to cross your fingers and hope that the, the, that you like the art for the book. Absolutely. It's definitely publisher generated. You just wish they would more often think outside the box. But I think they're starting to. I do think covers are beginning to be more creative and more unique. And I think that's wonderful. Back to your title. So when you're writing, did you have the mothers as your title originally either? Or do you just sort of write without a title and then figure that will come once the book is making its way through the publishing process? Well, I write with titles, but they're just not very good. (laughs) So when I get to the end, somebody tells me no. (laughs) They're like, no, we can't use this. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I mean, pretty much like, I don't remember what the original title for the mothers was, but for The Vanishing Half, I was just calling it like Mallard as I was working on it. And, you know, you get to the end and my editor's just like, no, like the SEO of that is going to be terrible. Like people are going to just find pictures of ducks when they Google this book. Like that's not going to work. So, which is right. But, you know, I, that was my working title was just Mallard. So, so yeah, I usually do have a working title, but it's usually not a very good one. And um, it's usually just the one that I have as I'm saving the document. But then when I get down to the end, somebody has to come in and tell me that that's not going to work. So. I feel, you know, fortunate that I have people around me who are good at coming up with titles, I think. And, you know, there's some writers who are amazing at coming up with titles or some people who can't start until they have the title. I'm not that type of person, but I definitely need some help, I think, when it comes to titling things, because I guess I'm lazy when it comes to titles. I don't think I'm terrible, but I just think I'd usually just choose the kind of low hanging fruit, which is not great for a book. I love that mallard where everybody would be looking up the book and all they'd get were pictures of ducks. She's probably like, yeah, that's not going to work so well here. Yes. But there is a lot with SEO now. So you want to make sure that when people are Googling, it is going to pull up your book and also that it's not the same title as for their books. Yeah, no, it's super important. Um, So you need somebody. I mean, most writers, I think, don't think that way. So that's why you need people like an editor who is thinking that way and who will kind of save you from yourself. Exactly. What about what you have read recently that you would recommend? Um, a lot of things I'm reading. Um, it's not new, but I'm reading Look at Me by Jennifer Egan, which I find really fascinating, which is about, it's in part about a model who experiences, who has this like horrible car crash that requires her to get uh, surgery that all completely alters her face. Um, and also it's about uh, this, this family in the small town that she's left behind. So I'm reading that, which is really, really interesting. And I'm really excited to see how it all is going to play out. And other things, I mean, I think uh, one of my favorite books from last year was The Days of Afrikeet by Asali Solomon, which I think in the book jacket, or maybe um, I think in the book jacket described it to me as 
Mrs. Dalloway meets Sula, um, but it's about this woman who's throwing a party. Um, it's like takes place in mostly in one day, but she's also remembering this uh, friendship that she had when she was in college. So that was one of my favorite books of last year that I really loved. And I also loved Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead, which is about a mid-century female aviator. So it's one of these books that like you could tell was clearly so deeply researched but not an extraneous way. It was very, um, there was no page on light bulbs. It was very, <laughs> it was research, but really, you know, I'm not a person. I have a best friend who is obsessed with planes and I was telling him to read this book. I know nothing about planes, but I still found it so fascinating to think about just the miracle of flight that we take, we take for granted, I say, as a person who was on a plane yesterday and just, it's so, you know, normal to just hop on a plane and not think about just the miracle of that, of that. This is something that we do so casually. And um, and the book follows this woman who's, you know, one of the only female aviators at the time. That one is high on my list, but it is big. So I just haven't gotten to it yet. It is very big. But I I mean, I'm, I am kind of a slow reader, but I blew through it. It's it's really propulsive, but it is, it is a big book. Yeah, I've heard nothing but great things about it. Well, Britt, thank you so much for joining me in the Thoughts from a Page podcast. This was a really interesting conversation and good luck getting The Vanishing Half as a paperback out into the world. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.